So how about art? <laughs> how about that art? Yeah. How about art? <laughs> yes or no? <laughs> I think it's a gray area for me. <laughs> oh, so you only work in monochrome? <laughs> yeah. Bad. That's, that's pretty much where we ended up on our first episode about art. It's kind of yeah. like great, great, great area. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. today we're gonna jump in and talk more about the creative process and talk about how we actually make art individually yeah yeah and i'm sure we have like kind of common struggles common struggles with that that we can talk about cool yeah (laughs) (laughs) welcome to postwave you're here with eric and trevor and we have again our special guest alex white joining us today hello Yep, Alex is up in Westminster, Colorado. I've been trying to uh, view the sunset and sunrise every day lately. Oh, yeah. Based off of this, like, neuroscientist that posts on Instagram. Oh, is that uh, that uh, Andrew uh, Huberman guy? Yep. Yeah. He posts some really good stuff. And, uh, I mean, speaking of him, he did, like, this post on how our eyes like perceive different colors i think and how that has to do with like skin cell regeneration and like a bunch of other crazy stuff that i never knew wow and also that our eyes are just extensions of our brain basically like our eyes are our brain and that Mm -hmm. i never really thought about that before it's pretty cool but anyways i made this like piece uh recently that is uh i just used four colors plus black and white uh red green yellow and blue and the reason i did that is because he explained that our eyes have uh i don't know if they're like neurons or something that specifically detect the contrast between red and green and blue and yellow so Mm. i thought oh that'd be cool if i just made a piece entirely out of those colors did you stick to just like one state one uh shade of each yeah pretty much because i use the sharpies Mm -hmm. um i think i used a couple different shades of blue and uh two different shades of green i just used the one red and i used a kind of like a yellow green um so that is kind of a wild card but Mm -hmm. Oh, that's super interesting. I really, yeah, I really look forward to knowing more about the brain so we can use that in, in creating art, especially especially music, because it has such a a weird, unpredictable relationship with our, our brain and, and our the way we think. Would that be more uh, along the lines of turning music into a science then? Uh, I mean, depends how you define music. Or depend, depends on how you define depends art how you science. define science yeah. too. Depends on how you define turns. 
turns. <laughs> oh wow! Depends on yeah. <laughs> what is is? What is is? <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't know. I I definitely view art as kind of a science because it's like you have like a hypothesis about a piece. And like you go in and you like do your experiments and then like, you know, the hypothesis either turns out to be true or not true. Like I went in with that one piece, like if I just do something with red, green, blue and yellow, uh, it'll look cool. That was my hypothesis. And then I did it and then it looked cool. So I might do it more in the future. But like it's also like I wonder, I'm like kind of wondering if doing pieces with just those colors has an effect or something so yeah I, I think that i don't know if like i've always approached art with kind of a scientific mind or if that was more spurred by that um neuroscientist posts mm -hmm. you know for sure so so alex has just described this way that his approach to creating art for this last piece was very scientific and that he had a, a hypothesis and he tried to do it and saw how it turned out. And so that's, that's kind of like a, the scientific method there. And I was wondering if that scientific method is always there whenever anyone creates art, or if you think that uh, when you normally create art, maybe uh, your approach is separate from that somehow yeah i mean it's hard to say that any kind of artistic process thing is universal because it's so subjective and people approach it in so many different ways so i definitely don't think you could say it's universal but i don't know for me it it, it seems now like people ask me you know do you hear do you just like hear melodies in your head all the time and then just instantly write them down and I mean, that pretty much never happens now because I don't write the kind of music that's conducive to that. <laughs> um, mm. Maybe maybe if it's it's more of like a, a pop music oriented kind of thing then I might hear like a little like, you know, little piece of a melody. But I think my like my main inspiration now comes in the form of just just ideas about something like, oh, what happens if I put reverse reverb on this? <laughs> And that's like, the, and like the hypothesis is that it's that it's gonna sound cool, and then yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it's like, yeah, six times out of ten maybe that it it works. It feels like, or it you know. <laughs> so in that process, then do you hone your craft by learning what is cool and what isn't? Yeah, I think I think you hone your craft anytime you you do it. Being able to, I think that like when you do it in that kind of method too, when you're just constantly trying new things, uh, you'll like discover something new, uh, that you can like add to your music or your art. And then like, you keep that in kind of like your book of knowledge <laughs> or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, like wherever you like store your ideas and, and you just like gradually also get better at knowing how to make something that is in your mind. Cause like I was thinking about this the, the other day that like a lot of it is like, I have this preconceived, idea, at least for me, like I have this preconceived idea of what I want a song to sound like for the most part, unless I'm just trying to be 
like purposely trying to be spontaneous and like I'll go and I'll try to make the sounds and I'm just kind of learning how to make those sounds along the process but also learning how to uh, like let go of things that aren't uh, working or something you know what I mean like I know that in my earliest stages it was like I was always trying to keep everything uh, that I made and just trying to like jam it in there and not really wanting to get rid of anything but now I kind of know when to get rid of things mm -hmm. and like how to have space and like another thing that I'm learning is silence and also how to take time yeah mm -hmm. are you talking about visual and audio or or yeah both? i think so visual and audio it's like kind mm -hmm. of a, a similar process but mm -hmm. yeah like looking back and listening back and i i always say that i want feedback from people but i don't think that that really is as much of a part of the process as I like to think that it is. What about you? <laughs> yeah. Unless it's like actually performance, like playing tuba or playing guitar and there's like a teacher like, oh, if you do this differently, then you'll get this sound better. But um, when it comes to actual creative things, it kind of mm -hmm. is like, eh, I'm going to keep my, you know, just like what I like. Yeah. I definitely yeah. have a problem with, with getting rid of stuff. And I, I always think about, I think it was something that uh, you told me, Alex, about about just the whole whole idea that you're gonna like something the more familiar it is, so the more you listen to it, you're gonna be like, oh yeah, it's not too bad. Like I should keep that in, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> Even if it's yeah, because yeah, there's sort of that confirmation bias. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's like okay. so. I remember. Uh, I remember in our composition seminar, Trevor. You know, every time someone wrote a new piece, we would show it for the rest of the class. And then, you know, you'd ask for feedback, but the feedback would always be like, hey, good piece. I like it. <laughs> you know, it sounds good. And no one would ever say anything critical at all. Um, and so one time we were like, hey, enough of this. We're going to have an anonymous feedback and you can submit your, your music and get some uh, critical feedback anonymously. Yeah, I did. You have a piece where we did that. I with? did. I, I I submitted one piece to that, and I got some. I think some valuable advice about that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I had forgotten about that. Was that the year that we had? It was like everyone had to give a presentation at some point. I don't recall if that was that year. Um, I, I do remember you were there though, because I remember I, I got the sheets of paper back that everyone had written theirs uh -huh. advice on, and I was like, which one of these is Trevor's? And I'm pretty certain I guessed it right because uh, you had this like nervous scribble on the side of it, and I was like, hmm, who who would have done that aside from Trevor? Nervous nervous no scribble. One. What do you mean? <laughs> Oh, just like, you know, you're sitting there at your desk and you've written it and then you're just sitting there with the paper and the pencil in front of you and you like make some uh, marks on the paper. Oh, just like a doodle? Yeah. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't call that a nervous doodle. <laughs> uh, well, however you want to put it. 
but uh, it, it was that that whole experience was really interesting to me because it really highlighted how vulnerable a thing it is to hear critical feedback about your creation because your creation is something that you've poured so much energy and effort into, and it sort of becomes your baby, and you don't want to hear any criticism against it because you'll feel like it's criticism against you yeah totally yeah i don't i don't know if i've told you guys this story but um i think the the most (laughs) kind of the most trying experience i've ever had with that was when i finished this half hour long chamber opera about the life of marie curie in um i guess this, this was my junior year and uh yeah so like by far like the longest biggest piece i'd ever written and uh (laughs) and i like been away uh studying abroad in in manchester england while writing it um which was kind of like (laughs) it wasn't ideal because i didn't get to you know work with the singers as much but anyway I, i came back and it was being workshopped and it was like coming together like you know it was gonna be pretty awesome i thought and you know it was definitely hard like all my music kind of tends to be so so the workshop i was doing at cu the cu new opera workshop uh they they bring in this guy mark campbell every year to work on the uh librettos with the composers and um he did the libretto for silent night by kevin putz who's a peabody guy and uh and it won a a pulitzer prize so he's like a a big deal and he went to cu boulder it happens um so Mm -hmm. you know pretty nice guy um, but we had like the composer feedback, like he, you know, he was just sitting with the four composers that were in the, the workshop program. And, you know, he, he asked, I think he asked us like whether we'd have, we'd rather have like, you know, public feedback all at once with everyone or just individually. And, um, and I remember saying, you know, uh, let's do it in a group. Cause maybe he'll be, he'll go a little easier or something. <laughs> and yeah. But what felt like it happened is he just had like glowing feedback for everyone else. And they, you know, they did the other people first cause that there were, they all wrote like 10 minute scenes. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, it was a couple other composers who were our year. So we were, we were, well, no, Aiden was a, my year. And then also, uh, Charlie Wellington, um, who was a year below us. Yeah. And then there was, uh, Kevin who was older. But anyway, yeah, he just dug into me and I, I literally like broke down into to tears and like we just had to kind of like oh. <laughs> end the meeting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, because it was like, uh, yeah, I remember he started with like, can I be blunt? And I was like, oh no. <laughs> and then, I mean, wow. yeah, he just said like, he was like, yeah, you know, the music's great, but like the main character, like I just, you know, he's like, do you even like her? <laughs> it's like i don't know um in hindsight did you feel like the feedback was valuable yeah i think i think i think it was ultimately um and you know it was it was valid i i didn't think it was invalid or i mean i guess his whole thing is that you know he he tends to stick to more like traditional stuff even if the even if the music is is kind of contemporary like he still sticks to kind of standard story structures and that kind of thing mm-hmm. and i think i think what the problem was was i was going for something a little bit more experimental and he just saw it as this like pastiche of like different uh or not pastiche 
this kind of just collage of different parts of her life that's like kind of disconnected and mm. um i don't know but i, th- I think it because the whole opera is like her having this like flashback and it's supposed to be like all these memories in very intense order mm-hmm. and um yeah i just don't know if that that came across but mm. um and you know it was it was my first time writing anything like that so and i think our, my teacher jan kellogg had told me at one point you know your your, your first project like that is is not going to be <laughs> it's like almost definitely won't be ex- like a, a, a blinding success right so you're going to just like learn a lot from it mm-hmm. yeah i think i remember talking with you about that too and like we like the consensus that we came to is like i might have been really ambitious like for a first project or something like to go through the different times like that or something I, I like vaguely remember talking with yeah you about that, yeah but. um yeah because the whole you know the whole a lot of the advice we were we were given is like you know don't try to pack too much story into your opera you know keep, the the events should sound like really like stupidly simple like you know so and so comes over and they have dinner and that's like the whole, <laughs> whole first act <laughs> or like uh right. ryan ferris's yeah scene. yeah yeah which is like a scene from a romantic comedy or or something yeah what was it It was like uh frat people like arguing and having like a breakup and like calling each other like you fucking shit and stuff like that (laughs) yeah 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 that that reminds me the other like the other thing was that it it, like the whole thing just seemed like really gloomy to him <laughs> and like mm-hmm. kind of un unhumorous which is uh which again is kind of like par par for the course for you know young undergraduate composers who want to sound like edgy <laughs> and new and <laughs> and whatever yeah that was like one of the things that that we like learned how to do in the tuba studio at least mm. is like uh that was a big part of our training was learning how to give and take critical feedback. Mm-hmm. It's a, a way to challenge yourself, right? It, uh, to face that. It's like a, a way to push yourself past the stumbling blocks that perhaps mar your art and to be able to embrace those changes. It, you know, if, if your art is your life, then that has to have the embedded metaphor that you're willing to embrace change in life and of yourself, which is a really dramatic thing to to have to face. Definitely. I think it's important to have a lot of levity and to not take yourself so seriously mm-hmm. too. Uh, like, cause it definitely is like a part of your personality, but if you take it so seriously, then uh, it'll be like more devastating. Mm-hmm. And I always like to think of a, Justin Roiland, I think is his name, the Rick and Morty guy. Like, back in his early days of, like, writing and doing comedy and stuff, um, he would, like, go onto forums where, like, videos of his had been posted and post under, like, sock puppet accounts, Mm. like, uh, being, like, devastatingly critical to, like, his own videos. (laughs) (laughs) Like just absolutely tearing into himself, you know. Wow. So it's like, it's just, it's interesting to like, 
think of criticism in that way too. Like if you're able to kind of see everything before other people do, then like you can't uh, be affected by it. Yeah. You, know? you can't beat me up. I'll beat myself up. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I do. I do think it's, it's kind of a different situation when your, your work is being criticized by, by someone who's just kind of experiencing it. And uh, when your work is being criticized like by a performer, I guess, which only applies really in, in the classical music mm. composition thing. But I don't know, that's yeah. something that's been really hard for me is, is like, I guess at, at, at both of the summer festivals I went to over these past couple of years, I don't know, as someone who can't read people that well, I just, I, I always have this like feeling that they're like maybe unhappy with me for, for how I wrote it or like <laughs> I write it something stupid that's gonna like, you know, in the case of vocalists, like maybe actually like hurt. And, you know, ultimately like, you know, it all worked out okay, but um, mm -hmm. it's harder to take criticism when there's kind of nothing you can do about it at that point, and and there's other people involved in that kind of thing. And it's uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, um, going into acceptance. Mm, yeah, mm. it's and I think I think uh, it's so hard. Like what you were saying, Alex, about like you kind of have to not take yourself so seriously, but. For if, if you're going to school for art for for music and like that's your thing that's you know you're at the time you're hoping maybe that you'll build a career off of it like that's who you are it's almost impossible to not take it seriously you know yeah that's true yeah and it's like it's a small world you don't want to piss off you want you you, you want to piss off as few people as possible <laughs> unless you're in the punk scene that's right yeah yeah you guys know about like gg right? <laughs> yeah. uh... no who's, who's that <laughs> oh my god trevor <laughs> uh let me let me see if i can find uh, a video he's kind of like the go-to example of just absolutely dirty filthy like performance artist oh, yeah. punk on the punk scene i think he died of mm -hmm. like a heroin yeah. overdose i know that eric andre eric andre cites him oh yeah I believe that very much. Just take take a little look at that. You can okay. kind of skip forward. It's pretty mild to start off with. If you're wondering what that stuff smeared all over him, it's his his own shit. <laughs> it literally is his own shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this this one's pretty pretty sedate uh, compared to some of the other uh, performances I've seen of Gigi Allen. I mean, he's got his underwear actually on. In this one yeah i have no idea what to think about that whole like performance art punk scene like yeah so 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 his, his usual shtick i guess is he is naked with his collar on mm -hmm. and he takes the shit in front of everyone mm -hmm. and then he eats the shit and then he throws up and then he throws the shit at the crowd <laughs> at every show I don't know about every show, <laughs> but like I guess pretty frequently, wow. and like physically attacks people <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> that's yeah, it's hardcore performance art. <laughs> hardcore <laughs> performance art shit. Uh huh. Yeah, it is really interesting. I mean, it's it's not clear at all to what extent it's performance art. And to what extent it's mental illness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, or he's just like high on meth. 
or heroin or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Both. <laughs> I mean, I'm not judging that. Yeah. What do you think uh, Gigi Allen's uh, creative process His was? His creative process? I don't even know if he would, like, conceptualize it like that. Maybe. Like... Did he write, like, all the music and the lyrics? I don't know. I'm sure he, I'm sure he was on the scene a lot, so I'm sure that, like, actually consuming performances was, like... A big part of it and being in that sort of milieu and you know reacting against the other performers and like who can take it to the highest extreme type deal you know mm. mm-hmm. yeah yeah i imagine that's a huge part of it i think so much the part of the process for people is just their life experience too like um mm. I'm sure that that played a huge part in the art that he made, just kind of reacting to the different experiences that he's had in his life and what it means to him. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I know, I know he's experienced some very abusive sort of situations mm-hmm. in his childhood. Yeah. I believe uh, the name Gigi came from his, his, I think, dad named him Jesus. And he like grew up in like a shed in the middle of the woods or something. If you're enjoying what you're listening to so far and you want to support us somehow, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can go follow us on Facebook or Instagram or visit us online at postwavepodcast.com or send us a nice email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on your podcasting platform of choice. We're on pretty much everyone out there. Give us a nice review if you're on a platform that supports that or a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. How many people are going to like write like a Corona play or something or like a Corona oh, album? God. Oh, you know what God. I mean? I saw like a uh-huh. Twitter. I saw a Twitter thing that was like, if you're out there thinking about writing a Corona play, <laughs> stop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, we don't need to relive this. We're not even done with it. <laughs> yeah. If you're writing your like one man Corona play right now, it's like you know what I really want to think about. <laughs> yeah, you know what hasn't taken up too much of my psychic energy already. Yeah. Um. So maybe uh, if you guys like, we could take this time to just kind of break down our own creative processes one at a time. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Sure. Um, currently, like I started this podcast with talking about, uh, trying to view the sunrise and sunset each morning. I've only been doing that this week and I've only been successful on like a couple days. Um, I just forget. I need to like set a reminder in my phone or something, Mm. but, um, I think 
the larger sort of aspect of that is trying to get into a routine. Mm. Uh, cause my most productive day this week was when I stuck to that. Uh, I like got up and I was like, okay. And, uh, you know, I'm going to look at the sun rise and, but you know, before that I'm going to do a little bit of exercise. I'm going to clean up a little bit. Uh, and then I'm going to take some notes in my book from my book that I read recently. And uh, usually when I do that, that's kind of where I generate ideas for articles is by taking notes from the places that I've saved in the books. Um, unless I have just kind of a an idea for an article already in mind, but reading books and taking notes on them uh, is a really good generative process. And then... <clears throat> After that, you know, spending a couple times and a couple uh, minutes in uh, audacity or, you know, playing the guitar or something and then actually reading. And also, I think it's important to take a break. I actually get a lot of my ideas from just like watching television. <laughs> you know what I mean? Hmm. Like... Uh, I'll be watching a show and I'll just get an idea to like parody them or like there's something that's really inspiring from it that I want to try to incorporate into my art. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I also try to keep like a general notebook uh, of ideas uh, that I have. And even if I don't follow through on each one of those ideas, it's cool to like go through and look at them and be like, oh, you know, maybe I could try this now that I've like given it some time to think. Um, and something you said earlier, Trevor, about like having how people ask you about, oh, do you have like melodies or something in your idea? And I thought like usually when I'm in Audacity, kind of messing around, usually like a melody or a lick that I want to play on the guitar will just kind of arise in the moment. Like I'm like, oh, this would sound really nice here. And like I have it kind of in my head. And like with the, you know, sort of aural training that we have, we know how to find those notes and how to like make the line from what we're hearing in our head. Mm -hmm. uh, so we do that. Um, and then sometimes I'll just sort of give myself the freedom it's kind of like a thing between freedom and restriction like sometimes i'll give myself the freedom to spend 30 minutes or an hour just kind of fucking around and like recording the process of that and then going back and like finding the cool things from there and this is purely in music mm. <clears throat> i guess in art a little bit too like drawing like sometimes i'll just be like okay don't worry about it looking any sort of way just go in and do whatever and usually really cool things happen when you let yourself do that and as long as you're able to like capture that um i mean with drawing and painting it's easy to capture that because you're like making the mark on the page but mm. with music sometimes you're just kind of lose yourself and you forget to record or something and it's like oh mm. well yeah 
that moment just kind of went to the wind but i think that that's yeah important. i just want to jump in here really quick because i i that's really speaks to something i experienced as well when i'm uh, playing music just on my own on my instrument just making random things up that's when the most inspired most uh i think effective artistic things come to me but it's so so hard to capture them except for for that one moment because uh to be in that flow state where you're letting it pour out you kind of can't be in the state where you're also observing yourself doing that so that you can recall it later and well you can but that's like extra hard and so it doesn't doesn't happen a lot of the time for me it's, it's like a one one more stumbling block to getting what's in my head out into the world and that to hit record as well and record what you're doing so you can listen back later sometimes that that works but a lot of the time i feel like that too is a major block to uh, actually letting the notes come out because I am creating all of, all of a sudden it seems as though I am making the music for this hypothetical audience that consists of everyone who could possibly ever listen to that recording and yeah. <laughs> uh, and and rather than just being in the moment creating that music for yourself and I think that when you're creating the stuff for yourself, that's when the true magic happens. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I have to. Uh, I, what I try to tell myself is like, just make this so rid so ridiculous that it's gonna be funny. Like, just go for like stupid shit, and and I find that that's usually like the most interesting things that happen because you you just you take bigger chances and you're not you're not basing things on the fear of of it being bad or or how someone else thinks mm. it's gonna like would think it sounds definitely yeah um that's yeah that's definitely one of my favorite uh parts of the process is like uh just letting it happen no matter what and just mm. um it's important i think that's important in writing too like doing it badly like going in and just writing like mm -hmm. spelling poorly, you know, doing awful sentences, like having the worst phrasing and but then like it just kind of puts you into this flow state and then suddenly you have like this, you know, good idea that kind of comes out of nowhere and mm. um yeah, I think that it that principle definitely carries through all types of uh, creative processes yeah yeah or like picking a subject matter that you know is just horrible and then trying to do your best to, to create it into something good <laughs> yeah i think that that goes with the limitations like totally I, like another process that i like to do is i think i learned this in like the music technology class that we all had to take is like um you know, you only get to use four sounds and, mm. and, but what's amazing about that is that there are like hundreds of effects and different things that you can do 
you know, like literally infinite combinations of things that you can do to like one yeah. second of one sound. So <laughs> even if you have five, four second clips, you can make, you know, literally, you know, not anything, but like a lot of shit. And it's like, even though it's so limited, you have like this huge array of like possibilities that you can still do, but limiting mm. down like that is really cool. And like, maybe you limit yourself to like three effects or something and it can only be like a minute long or something. Yeah. And mm. putting those limits on yourself definitely helps. Yeah. Cause it's so crazy now definitely. with, I mean, any DAW like logic or, or pro tools, like there's so many different controls that you have. It's, it's almost ridiculous like to even know where to start and you kind of end up just doing the same kinds of things all the time by default and like the amount of time and effort it would take to like adequately adequately explore the whole space of of possibilities in one of those programs is is like crazy so yeah it yeah. could be it could be super overwhelming so it's really helpful to, to kind of like limit yourself and and narrow things down and like a in a in a creative way. I think um, another part of my process lately, like just, I would say like the past couple of years is uh, trying uh, new things. I haven't been able to do it since I left college. Cause like in college, you could just take a class. Like I did mm. all of my electives in art. Like I was like, well, I'm getting a music degree. I might as well just, you know, take art as I well. I didn't know that. Like, mm -hmm. And so I did like sculpting classes and painting mm -hmm. classes and stuff like that. And I'm still kind of doing a lot of that stuff. And um, I don't really know. I think if anything, how that fits into my process is like some of the sculpting takes like longer and you have to have like waiting times for things to dry and mm -hmm. um, things like that. So when you're, when they're drying, I can like go over and draw something or and like one process that I have found really useful in my drawing. I think it's a similar thing to like writing and uh, composing is like going back and looking at my drawings and like taking the best elements of them and kind of like extracting them like and like just making like a big list of like all the different things that I've drawn like the different uh um shapes and forms and like just having that list of like uh I don't even know really what's it like, called like uh, I would say like Id idioms or something yeah like idioms yeah. mm. having these idioms to draw from like in front of me so i so that like takes off some of the cognitive load of like trying to mm. uh Love. come up with something in the moment mm -hmm. you know and then you can like do different shapes and combinations together and uh, that's really cool yeah because yeah. it's it's weird ways it's the same thing with music like it's this kind of unlimited seems like an unlimited medium but if you pay close attention you'll find that like most things you you come up with fit into like some category of, of kind of thing that you do all the time like 
certain mm-hmm. kinds of melodies or, or harmonies or you know colors or colors or, or shapes that kind of thing like even though Definitely. it seems like you could do anything at any time and like you're slowly coming up with new things you do have have like a limited vocabulary kind of mm, definitely uh one question i wanted to ask you alex is that as a multidisciplinary artist do you find that your artistic process in one medium influences your art in another medium i think in some ways it does but in other ways they're pretty separate in which ways do you think it does influence like just the sort of principles of uh creativity i think is the main thing like as i'm learning about how to be creative in the different fields like you pick up on things of like the process like uh to just keep trying to have a lot of different Mm. iterations like it's generally Mm. better to have like a hundred attempts at something than trying to get one perfect yeah Mm. attempt Mm -hmm. that's like a general principle of creativity that applies across all of the fields same with like letting yourself just kind of go crazy every now and then (laughs) is like another Mm. principle and i think definitely like the biggest thing i've learned that's super important that i don't actually follow that much but i probably could but that i still try to get back to is fundamentals you know like if you learn the fundamentals of a field like they're generally the same like the idea of fundamentals is the same i mean each one has its own idiosyncrasies but like it you know it's about going back to the sort of zen mind beginner's mind trope or you know cliche making sure that each of the elements of the thing you're creating have a merit of their of themselves it's like uh, using good ingredients when you're cooking yeah so so what would you say say like the, the fundamentals of of music composition are like maybe maybe leaving lyrics out of it of music the fundamentals of music composition could you elaborate on that a little well i guess like i guess it's more of a question for alex like when you think of the fundamentals of music that you keep going back to like what what are they or like what are some examples at least with my intuitive sense it's like important when like i know that when i go into uh composing a song like there are usually different elements that I usually always put in like I know that having generally and I mean this is general so I think sometimes there are like specific songs where it's like oh maybe I just want to stay in the mid-range or something but I mean generally I like to try to have like a super low tone and like a super high tone Mm -hmm. um, that is going on I like to have sort of like a like a pedal that's happening in terms of like a motif, like some, like a baseline just kind of going and that's something that's really repetitive. Mm -hmm. And then I like to have sort of like downward motion and upward motion. Like it's as simple as that, you know, downward and upward. And like, 
I think it gets experimental when you're like purposefully trying to keep it, you know, like we're just going to keep everything s static and um, moving in one direction. I think other things that I think of is like tone and timbre. It's definitely very intuitive to me mm -hmm. and it's hard to sort of explain yeah, yeah. I mean, you can make a lot of music just just focusing on the on the timbre. Mm. Yeah, it's good going back to our spectralism yeah. episode. Yeah, I guess part part of going back to the fundamentals is is realizing what what assumptions you made about like how to proceed from them, or or things, you know, mm. like as a, as a piano player, a lot of the time I'm just assuming that you know I'm gonna be like this is gonna be a piano or synth sound or whatever. Um, but doesn't necessarily have to be so you know even if it's uh like it doesn't even necessarily have to be like a constant synth or a constant piano sound it could be it could be like constantly changing or it could be like morphing in weird mm. ways or you know there's so many cool. different <laughs> like things you can mess with yeah it's i think also it's like the elements of the music mm. that are the fundamentals of the music like the the tone, the rhythm, the pitch, you know, harmony, melody, like those are all very fundamental things that mm. like you can always improve on. Mm. Um, that's, a, that's the other thing about fundamentals is like getting really good at fundamentals is really hard. Like mm. when you, when you think about fundamentals, and... you think like, Oh, beginner, like I want to like move past all this stuff, but really when you get to like a super advanced level, you start to appreciate how like beautiful the fundamentals in themselves are. Yeah. Yeah. You start developing the craft of it as opposed to the artistic side. Yeah. The, the technical element. Yeah. And it's something that there are things that people can improve throughout their entire careers, even as they you know, achieve mm -hmm. success and stuff, they can mm -hmm. still be working on, on it. Yeah. Perfecting the fundamentals at like a higher and higher uh, quality. Yep. Trevor, what would you say are the fundamental uh, facets of classical music or, or music in general? Yeah, well, I think the one thing I was thinking about is is the idea of clarity. Like you want, hmm. not that you can't have, you know, textures that sound uh, like muddy or washed out or whatever. Like you can have those as, you know, for their own sake. But I think in general, like, especially in classical music, the, the, the best pieces have some kind of sense that you can like hear all the parts and none of them are, you know, they're ex balanced exactly right. Um, I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, but that's kind of like a high level thing, I guess. Um, so like actually really basic fundamentals is like, uh, you know, pitch timbre, like we said, rhythm, harmony, texture, yeah, there are probably some things. One one that I think I've been neglecting for a really long time that, like, I always have heard professors say it, and I've heard musicians speak about it on, like, YouTube and shit, but silence is, like, so, so important to... Totally, yeah, the interplay uh, between on and off, right? <laughs> yep. Like, I realize that, like, pretty much all of the songs that I've ever made 
are just constant noise like throughout the entire thing even if it gets quiet in some parts Mm -hmm. like there's never silence you know what i mean and i'm like holy shit like i i never give like anything room to breathe and like that's that was Mm -hmm. that was kind of like a huge revelation that i had recently that uh i mean i'm grateful to like have it and to finally understand it but i mean it took me you know like (laughs) 14 15 years of being a musician to be like oh silence is important (laughs) you know what i mean and like i even understood it on like a conceptual level like john cage like 433 like (laughs) yeah like you know there are things that are going on outside of you know music but i never understood it like i know the one of the like most perfect examples of this is like the hindemith uh i think it's like symphonic band piece or something like it's like all building up to like this one moment and it's like one 16 like 16th note of silence and like during our symphonic band practice like that was so crucial to the piece like every year that we would play that they would just like hammer home how important it is that one Mm -hmm. moment of complete silence from the entire ensemble Mm -hmm. And, like, I've noticed in, like, pop songs recently that, like, Lizzo does it really well. Like, (laughs) and, like, her and her producers, like, I mean, her production team is just insanely talented. And, like, you'll notice that, like, they'll they'll do, like, the end of a phrase and it'll be, like, you know, a couple, couple beats, like, two sixteenth notes or, you know, a quarter note of silence and, like... (laughs) It's just like I never noticed before how important that shit is. Yeah, it stands stands out to me every time I hear that in in any kind of pop thing, meaning anything that's not like classical, because it tends to it tends just to be wall to wall sound a lot of the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. really saturated. Yeah. But it's really effective when it's when it's used. Mm. And I think there's a conceptual underpinning to that, or a reason why it's so effective, because. I think uh, silence and, and space is an essential part of living and uh, that contrast between on and off, if you're on all the time, you don't appreciate it as much. It just becomes baseline. And so if you have that off to compare it to, it makes the on all the more special. It's uh, it's the same as breathing. You know, If you're holding your breath or breathing shallowly that's a a less rich experience than if you let yourself breathe deeply all the time yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) a moment of silence oh i totally yeah there's a moment of silence and i totally just blurted into that Yeah, why is it? Why are we so uncomfortable with silence a lot of the time? I think, I mean, (laughs) speaking as someone who I feel like is very good at, at like, letting conversations just kind of trail off, I feel like it's the impression Mm. that, like, either the person, you and the person you're talking to have, like, so little in common that you can't find anything to talk about, or that, like, you're both just kind of boring people, or, like, I feel like that's kind of the implication. Uh, yeah yeah you get anxiety about being in that silence because you and you might like draw conclusions about why 
why that anxiety is coming. But I don't know. Do, do you think that maybe on a deeper level, people just often in our society have a tendency to be uncomfortable in silence no matter what? I don't know. I kind of wonder if that's like a American, uniquely American or uniquely Westernized mm. uh, sort of thing as well. Like totally. if there if there are cultures that aren't so uncomfortable with silence. Yeah. Um, yeah. It would seem that uh, a lot of Eastern tradi traditions would perhaps be more comfortable with silence as that's so deeply rooted in their philosophy. Or perhaps even like our own indigenous mm population you know like i know that there are like uh stories of like um na natives speaking to you know colonels or whoever would show up to their tents and like they would be they would just kind of like sit in silence for three hours or something and the mm. they would <laughs> you know the these people are like what the hell is going on or, <laughs> Or, like, the way that they speak, you know, like, they let these long pauses happen. And, like, mm. they're so, like, rushed to, like, get the deal done or to, like, do something. I think it's connected to, like, this idea of we always have to be productive in right. society or something. So if there's dead time and there's dead silence, that means that there's no productivity happening. You know, there's <laughs> nothing happening. I think you're spot on there. Yeah. I feel like I feel like technology is definitely playing a role, though. Mm, yeah, exacerbating I, it. Yeah, because I mean, the mm. feeling I have, I think the the main reason the main reason I'm uncomfortable with silence when I'm just you know like by myself in my apartment is like if I'm just doing some kind of menial random task, I feel like I could either be listening to just you know I feel like I could be mm -hmm. listening to something whether it's music or a podcast and could be like having a richer experience. Yep. And yeah, I do the same thing. Yeah. And sometimes I, I, I try to just like focus very intensely on the sounds of, you know, whatever I'm doing, like if it's cutting an apple mm. or something, uh, yeah. or just like, yeah, notice the ambient sounds or be like very intentional about my emotions and that kind of thing. But usually I, I don't do that. Mm. Yeah. I've been thinking about that, uh, John Cage. I think it was John Cage that said, um, like, you know, I never have to listen to music again because I have the environment or something yeah, like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's all these sounds and everything that's happening all the time, and it's so complex and beautiful. Like, totally. if you really are just take a minute to listen to it and notice all of the different things that are happening. I think, I think maybe a part of why we're so scared of silence is as well uh, the sonic environment that we find ourselves in. It's it's not a tailored, it's not a, a pleasant sound if you're anywhere mm. even slightly industrialized. It's, mm. I mean, it's, it's very definitely not taking our sonic experience into consideration. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's the opposite, right? It's unpleasant. It's, yeah, it's unpleasant. It's abrasive. It triggers all our instincts of like f fight or flight, um, or like there's like screaming monsters around us all all over the place. That's what our our biology is telling us from the sounds that we're taking in. Wow, that's so interesting. Right? I mean, 
don't you ever feel that way just like that's one of the biggest complaints yeah walking on the street is a bus passes you your ears just clench up it's like a yeah it's like a an aural assault you know it is a bus when a bus passes you or or those fucking gas-powered leaf blowers yeah (laughs) you know i've actually that's a piece that i want to do at some point in my (laughs) lifetime is like uh have people sit in a park somewhere and uh-huh. then hire like, you know, I don't know, 18 musicians to <laughs> oh, uh, just be like spread out across the park with leaf blowers. And like uh-huh. some of them are like in apartments or, you know, like <laughs> some of them are, you know, really far, away, like far away enough that like you can hear it like, but that it's so far, you know, that it's just like mm. kind of a, and then like, figure out how to coordinate with all of them like maybe through like uh like walkie talkies or something and like do kind of like a leaf blower symphony i think that that would be amazing <laughs> amazing yet horrifying <laughs> so also great for the environment totally yeah <laughs> yeah i think they spew out like 80 percent of their gas as unburned solids which <laughs> <laughs> and and they like blow the all of the nutrients off of the the lawn <laughs> along with the leaves that sounds awful yeah they're horrible I, I i actually have to work with them when i do my my part-time landscaping stuff um i have to use the blowers and you know it, it is less annoying when you're blowing it yourself uh, at least as well as far as the sound goes, I don't know why that is, but the smell is horrible. I think because you have some control over it. Yeah, totally. I think it's usually less annoying when you blow yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you have lots of experience with this, Trevor. <laughs> Sadly, no. <laughs> if only one could reach. <laughs> Yeah, but at the same at the at the same time, like we're we're surrounded by all these kind of industrial, you know, mechanical sounds. But you kind of can use the 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 John Cage kind of concept of it's all just sound to to I think be a little more at ease with that kind of thing. Like, I mean, as long as you're you know you're you're not getting physically hurt, your ears aren't physically mm. getting hurt by the by how Which loud things are. They like. usually are, actually. <laughs> right. But uh, yeah, but, but short of that, you're right. Yeah, if yeah. you have that extra conscious step of recognizing it, recognizing it within that light, then you can kind of ameliorate the effect of of your natural stress response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both both the places I lived in Austin for the past three years or so, like that you you're you're close enough to the to the freeway to hear it like all the time, pretty mm-hmm. much. It's, I've been having really nasty tinnitus lately. Yeah, yeah. Trevor, I think I sent you the that source of uh, like t- tinnitus association or something. That oh yeah, yeah. Of the different kinds of tinnitus. So so for me, a lot of people will just have like a single like high pitched note all the time. Like Trevor, you said that's what you have. Yeah, right? yeah. 
for me it it depends on like how much sleep i've had and how stressed i am and how sick i am and those kind of things but when it's acting up it's like this roaring everywhere um in the background with like particular overtones really really high up coming out pretty pretty strongly relative to the white noise and then but the most alarming is there's this acute and actually pretty loud sound in my right ear which is randomly vacillating two pitches which are about a whole step apart um and they're you know pretty high up but they're they're not like really really high register they're like something an a high registered instrument could play and is it kind of like a siren it's kind of like a siren um well yeah yeah it is is quite a bit like that except for most of the time the it changes randomly between the two pitches so it'll be like it's like a sun sun concert in your head all the time <laughs> yeah totally <laughs> it's uh, i don't know it's kind of troubling but at the same time it's like interesting it's like i'm listening to a chaos pattern it's like just right there in my experience there's no barrier between me and this very visceral very real experience of of a chaos pattern yeah someone i i that sounds i thought i understood Mm -hmm. at some point that tinnitus is caused by like the the hairs in your ear that are uh help you to hear like some of them can just get laid down permanently and then you hear those frequencies Mm -hmm. As oh, your tinnitus yeah. is that have you guys heard that um i hadn't heard that particular but i have heard that it's like when particular hairs uh, are damaged by sound they uh, the, the tinnitus is often the sound of those hairs dying yeah yeah i i heard somewhere else though that, that it it does have a lot to do with your like just your brain or like mm. it could be caused by like you said you know whether you're sick or something or whether you're deficient in certain things um definitely yeah because i uh, i think you're like um ear canal is sort of connected to your brain too isn't it uh-huh. or like at least yeah directly yeah it's like that whole like your whole like cranium is just kind of this crazy like sound thing yeah it's uh so so having this tinnitus has made me really come to terms with the fact that my experience is a subjective experience i i am an imperfect resonant body that is resonating with the world at large and uh just as like if a a a box if you play noise around it and then put a microphone up to the box you'll hear that box resonate and play back the sound of the world around it but it's kind of filtered it's imperfect and having this tinnitus has made me realize pretty unequivocally that 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 is me you know my experience of the sound around me is all subjective and imperfect yeah yeah 
Although, yeah, I mean, it depends. I would agree it, it is imperfect, but I guess the question is, could you ever have, quote unquote, a perfect representation of of sound? Or like, it doesn't even make sense to define something as perfect versus imperfect when you can't actually attain like some perfection? I mean, I think I think we can point to a, a spectrum of approaching perfection, even if we can't reach it pre- precisely. Because take for example the the resonant body metaphor. You can have like a a shitty tin can speaker that plays back the sound around it, but it, you know the audio quality is horrible and a lot of information is lost. Or you could have the really super nice uh, custom studio monitors that are pretty darn spot on accurate for the most part yeah yeah you're totally right i guess what i'm trying to say is the way things sound is only because of our human brain and that like the motion of the air molecules themselves themselves don't have a sound right yeah sound is just the method by which we interpret that motion as information right so it's like it's relative to what we perceive as the most perfect representation of the sound which is (laughs) (laughs) yeah on its own kind of just arbitrary Mm. whoa it's like all an illusion man (laughs) (laughs) that makes me think of the uh like thought experiment of uh if we're all seeing the same colors like if we're all hearing the same sounds right if someone's red the same as someone else's turquoise yeah which i don't know did do trevor did we talk about that in the what's it like to be a bat i think i think maybe we did and and i think i forget if i said this then but um i think douglas hofstadter talks about this in his book uh, i am a strange loop and uh, he talks about how the the red blue thing doesn't make as much sense if you if you consider something like uh, like low sounds and high sounds because high sounds always make your forehead vibrate, right? And low sounds mm. will always make like your chest yeah. vibrate. So like for someone to get those two things mixed up would be a lot harder than for. It'd be like some sort of like disease. Yeah, or it, or it would yeah, just like... be like a linguistic thing i guess yeah like akin to like a stutter or something oh right right like how some cultures like yes is up and down and no is up and yeah yeah or even like it's not i don't think it's a universal actually i forget (laughs) whether this is universal or not uh but you know the conception of like low sounds versus high sounds like that's a, that's a spatial metaphor i, I can actually necessarily... speak, speak to you yeah that that is not a standard across all cultures yeah. some cultures have that reversed some individuals have that reversed mm-hmm. hmm. yeah yeah which kind of ties into like something that i was going to say about like my sound environment because we were kind of talking about what we hear like i know like at my home it's not like anything is super loud, but I'm definitely very like con- cautious, not um not cautious, conscious. Like I'm very aware of all the different sounds that happen 
in my environment, uh, like the cars going by. Mm. You can kind of hear the highway from where I'm from. We're like a mile or so away from it. Um, there's usually planes and stuff that go overhead. Mm. Like you can, whenever my grandpa's watching the television, I can always hear it. And that has like led me to want to get uh, noise canceling headphones for a really long time, and mm. I finally got them. Oh, awesome! Nice. And the, it's kind of like an interesting experience, uh, experience, you know. Um, but uh, and like he's just he's kind of loud in general, I think, because mm. he's kind of losing his headphones or not his headphones, <laughs> but his hearing. Yeah. And uh, like something. I think that I have like misophonia uh, what is that? because some sounds kind of trigger like intense anger in me. Hmm. And it's kind of like, what is misophonia? I mean, I think it's like, I think it's pretty much that, that like sounds like trigger emotions in me. Like hmm. I think a lot of people have, might have versions of it. Like, uh, when you hear someone eating, like you get super irritated, like that's a common, hmm. uh, symptom. Oh yeah. It. Maddie has that. Uh, My girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and like, it's, it's like, it's something that I can't really control. Uh, I can be aware of the, the anger, but it, uh, and like not, you know, act on it or anything, but mm. it just like kind of triggers a very visceral like rage in me sometimes wow. when I hear certain sounds and it's like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea why, but I, I think that it definitely helps with my music and composing in a weird way because I'm like really sensitive to all the different, like, uh, I don't know, I guess textures or like shapes or, um, timbres of the sounds mm. that I hear, and like so, I'm. I think that that definitely helps with my composing process. But um, yeah, I think I think it it definitely implies kind of a, a sensitivity to to sound, which is, I mean, for for composing, that's kind of what you want. You want to be super sensitive. Totally, definitely to to like differences in in what you like versus don't like. So not to monopolize the time, but maybe since we said we were going to go through all of our different processes, Eric, yeah, I yeah. should go real quick. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. Trevor, do you want to go ahead? Yeah. So uh, it's different for different pieces and it's different for classical composition versus kind of free jazz, uh, hip hop, whatever kind of fusion I'm, I'm trying to do. Um, but I, I think in general, it, it always centers around improvisation and and using improvisation to generate ideas and then kind of working with those ideas methodically. Um, and, and improvisation is just such a good way to generate a, a bunch of material kind of stream of consciousness wise. And then if you can record it and, and go back and kind of analyze which parts worked and, and which didn't and... You know, in the case of being in, in a DAW, like Logic, it's it's nice because you can literally just like trim the clips down. Like, okay, I'm only, I'm only keeping like this 10 seconds and I'm going to make something with it. Yeah, and in the case of, of classical pieces, like uh, it's just a good way to figure out how to like manipulate 
your materials or come up with with different chords or the harmonies or melodies that you're going to use without thinking about them too much without uh so when you say without thinking about them too much do you mean like uh just sort of letting the natural process happen or yeah yeah letting the natural process happen and then you can kind of go back and think about it and analytically after you've already done it mm-hmm. but i think if you try to get too analytical when you're when you're creating the thing it can it can either be frustrating or results in something that's not super interesting mm. um, i wanted to kind of ask you guys about that though like how do you feel about like pre-composition pre-planning for, yeah. for any kind of of so why don't i go ahead and uh talk about uh my pre creative process uh when create when composing um so i'm going to talk first about my experience writing you know contemporary classical music uh which mostly i did back in college i have not been keeping up with that um because uh, i think a part of it is because of the process by which i approached that um which i i started with i would always start with a conceptual idea some like philosophical or like uh visceral image that i had for example one was i had uh fallen asleep one summer up out in in the studio at my grandmother's house where i was staying on the island of martha's vineyard and watching the fireflies outside in this pure darkness and i was thinking you know i couldn't i couldn't these fireflies wouldn't really mean much of anything without the darkness behind them to give them uh contrast and then waking up to the most tumultuous thunder later that night or early in the morning right above my head and seeing this lightning flash outside and then, so I have this philosophical concept from that. All right, so we have the connection between fireflies, which is light amid, amidst darkness, and lightning, which is the same thing. And so from that particular perspective, these two things are the same thing. And so once I had that philosophical drive, which was like the center, like the point of the piece that I was trying to get across through music, then I would come up with a theme just by playing around, find like the central part that uh, I can then extrapolate and build more material off of. Um, But this whole process for me was actually very challenging and uh, really kind of like grinding, grinding my teeth because uh, every step of it was so it felt like it was so steeped in intentionality in meaning that it was kind of paralyzing and I wasn't able to get anything out in the way that I really hoped and you know that's not quite true because I, I, I would eventually get stuff out and I'd be pretty proud of it for the most part but um, I, I felt like that like we were talking about that severity that intentionality was kind of a a handicap for me and and yet it was the only focal method i could 
inspire myself to create with. Hmm. Yeah. I, I know the feeling when you, when you can see exactly where you want a piece to go or like exactly what, what you want it to capture and, and you can hear it almost perfectly in your head or you can imagine it perfectly, but not in enough detail to actually like <laughs> make yeah. it happen. And it's, it's, yeah, I can seem really, really hopeless sometimes. I mean, be, being a person who likes to go on hikes a lot, uh, mm. it, it, I always compare it to like going, climbing a, a tall mountain or hill and like it, you can see where the top is and it seems like you've been walking forever and you still haven't really gotten that much closer to it. <laughs> and it seems like you're never going to get there. And then if you just keep going, you'll get there. But it, it seems like it's, it might take literally forever. Hmm. Mm. yeah you can never really get to the top if the top is perfection right you can only see try to approach it yeah 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 the top just being you're satisfied enough to to end it <laughs> i guess it's, it's all relative uh or, or the top being like you represented that idea perfectly like you couldn't have done it any better or no one could have ever done it any better Mm-hmm. I think there's always a little bit of distance between what you wanted to accomplish and what you actually did. Yeah, yeah. always. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's just it's just different than what you set out to accomplish, and it's not necessarily better or worse. But um, yeah, I mean, I've, yeah, I've definitely had, had times where I feel like I fall short of <laughs> what I set out to accomplish. Same. Yeah. Yeah. What to do in those situations? Just kind of try to let it go and then move yeah. on to something else. Or yeah, I mean, if if that happens, then I feel like you kind of automatically learn something about yeah. about how to how to make better art, and like that's it's like that's the, the value right there. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, Alex, what you were saying earlier about how art is an iterative process and every time you create something, you learn something about the art. It's that, that scientific method. It's, is did it work or not? And you always learn something. Yeah. That feels like a pretty good place to end it. What do you guys think? Unless you yeah. have anything else to add. Uh, well, can I, can I plug my choir piece? Or like plug it, plug it real yeah. hard. <laughs> all, all the plugs for my for my choir piece. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, what was that for, anyways? Oh yeah, so um, I'm part of this new music choir in Austin called Inversion Ensemble, and it's this choir of about I want to say like 30, 40 people. Um, it's kind of a large pool that uh, that gets drawn from. So each concert they do is is a slightly different uh, group of people. Uh, but there's a lot of composers in the group and we all write pieces for the for the choir to sing and then we pull in pieces from other you know other composers that aren't in the group as well um and so our our big project this year is to do a, a collaborative requiem mass where each composer in the group writes a different movement and uh it's getting it's gonna it wasn't clear at first whether it was going to be performed or recorded because the the concert was set for like i think the end of february and they didn't know how things were going to be then, but I think I think now it's it's definitely just going to be recorded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I so I got to write the the movement that takes the place of the Pia Yezu movement, 
of the Requiem. And uh, some, some of the composers were like assigned to use traditional texts and others weren't. Uh, and I got to be one of the non-traditional ones. So I, I kind of played on the idea of uh, rest and eternal rest that's in the, the original Piazzi text and went and found some other poetry that I thought uh, exemplified that. So I took some lines from William Wordsworth and some lines from uh, Christina Georgina Rossetti, who wrote uh, In the Bleak Midwinter, the poem for that. And um, yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of interesting because, because I've had some pieces that start with kind of a philosophical basis, like you were talking about Eric. Um, mm. But as I, as I wrote this piece, I started thinking a lot about uh, this philosopher, uh, Jamie McTaggart, I've been into a lot recently, who, um, who's best known for this idea that, that time as we experience it is an illusion and um, that all uh, time points exist eternally in some sense and so i kind of wove that in as the piece went on and it started to take shape around the idea of eternity and i ended up like quoting some of the some of that uh that article he wrote called the unreality of time at the end um just kind of as, as spoken text which is something which cool. is something i i've never done in a piece before that, that i can think of so so that excited about that, that that text will be spoken once like the entire piece has been performed like someone's so, just going to speak it in into a microphone or uh actually so it starts uh i think i timed it and it takes me the, the chunk of text i have there takes me like 40 seconds or something to read so oh, is that it, what that like long hold was at the end yeah well it actually starts i think maybe like i don't know 10 to 20 measures from the end i guess and so the first part of it we read over the like while the music is happening and then yeah the choir just holds the last note until the the speaker finishes but then the um the piano part the, they just kind of play through their part and then and then rest um cool yeah i can't wait to hear it yeah yeah i'm be super dope. excited about it yeah i really felt like my i was like really satisfied with the way the harmonies came out because i feel like that's something i struggle with a lot is like coming up with harmonies that are like unique and also make sense and i i mm. felt like i i kind of got to some some cool colors that i hadn't really ever used before so that was that was fun awesome it's wonderful yeah well when is that being released uh i don't know when it's going to be released i think hopefully sometime around around sometime in march cool so yeah i'll keep everyone posted great can't wait yeah alex that remix you did is is super cool it's really cool that you uh got to get to do that though and that you're a part of that ensemble yeah i kind of i mean i feel really lucky i just kind of lucked into it since um the uh the church my mom used to be the the children's minister at is where the uh one of the the co-directors and co-founders goes and he's a tenor oh, in the cool. choir there, and and so uh, and the music director there, Tina, who I've known for a long time, she's also in the in the in inversion ensemble. So, um, nice. That was pretty. Yeah, I just kind of looked into that, and they're they're both really cool people. And uh, yeah, and Tre Trevor, the other, he's the conductor and the other guy who who founded it. Um, he's he's pretty awesome. He like he went to North Texas, and I apparently he was almost in Snarky Puppy. <laughs> 
he's he's a trombone player and apparently like that they weren't happy with the trombone trombone player they had at the time and like they were about to fire them and then they didn't <laughs> uh. <laughs> something like that well cool thanks for having me on yeah good times 